Well, hey, good morning again, Jacksonville Presbyterian Church. Hey, I know it feels like an eternity ago, uh, but if you can remember, two weeks ago, I suggested to you uh, to consider moving from panic into prayer and to move from uh, pride into prudence and then to move from complacency towards your neighbors and coworkers and friends and to move towards them with compassion. And uh, last week, I suggested to you uh, that you and I uh, in our church and really our whole country and world are moving into some kind, um, some new kind of different, uh, and that Jesus is calling us to come out of this season of life in a new kind of different way. And so this morning, as we pick up again in the Gospel of John, this morning in John chapter 12, uh, we're going to see in John chapter 12 uh, part of what this new kind of different can be like. And in John chapter 12, you and I are meant to learn not just from Jesus, uh, who, is, who is extravagantly generous to us, but you and I are also supposed to learn from two women, Martha and her sister Mary, who show Jesus extravagant generosity. And so friends, for us to, to study God's word means that we come before Jesus. Uh, we bow down at his feet, so to speak, to learn from our master and our Lord who laid down his life for us. And when we read God's word and we study it, even though it's virtual right now, we're meant to come out of this as different people. And if, if anything gets through to you this morning, remember this, that you and I are supposed to be coming out of this season of life, out of this strange moment in human history and a new kind of different way. And particularly for you and me, that means that you and I are called to come out of this in a new kind of generous way. Uh, that you and I are meant to embrace and receive the generosity of God. And we are meant to express that generosity to those around us. And we start to see how that gets done right here in John chapter 12. And so with that in mind, let's read John chapter 12, just the first eight verses. Now friends, hear the word of the Lord. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now, friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure forever. Thanks be to God. Uh, let's pray as we open up God's word together. Father, we thank you that you gave your son for us. Uh, Lord, that uh, in your generosity do we see your glory and your love and your holiness and your power. And Father, we pray uh, that as your people uh, in this country during this time, uh, for such a time as this, uh, Lord, that you would mobilize your church to be a new kind of generous. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Uh, Well, as we go into this passage, I really just want you to see sort of three simple things uh, in this story. It's almost an outline if you need one. And it's simply this. I want you to see the aroma, the stench, and the hope. So if you're taking notes at home, those would be three simple outline notes that you could be sort of scribbling, and you'll see how those track through uh, our talk this morning. It's the, it's the aroma, it's the stench, and it's the hope. Now, so let's dive right into the story and just make sure you understand the context of what's going on. Well, right there in verse 1, in John 12, verse 1, it says that this story of Mary anointing Jesus' feet and wiping his feet with her hair, all of this takes place six days before the Passover. And all the Passover was, was this ancient uh, feast that the Jewish people used to put on once a year uh, during the springtime to remember that God had delivered them out of slavery in Egypt and had brought them to the promised land in the land of Israel. And so once a year, all of God's people would uh, try to assemble together in Jerusalem. And uh, Jesus is coming to celebrate Passover uh, as he would have done every year of his life, except this Passover for Jesus is very different than any other because Jesus knows that this will be the last Passover that he celebrates with his disciples before he dies on the cross. And so this Passover is really the last Passover of Jesus when his earthly ministry is going on. So right there in verse 1, uh, we see that these are, it's six days before this final Passover, before Jesus uh, becomes the ultimate Passover lamb. And so uh, if you're interested in Holy Week, uh, you'll, you'll probably find it interesting that next week is Palm Sunday, uh, which was the Sunday that Jesus enters Jerusalem, hailed as king, and everyone, you know, lays palm branches down in front of him when he comes in on the donkey. Uh, maybe you remember that story, uh, but this story actually takes place the night before Palm Sunday. So this would be Saturday night. Uh, Jesus is eating dinner with his friends And that is on his mind. He's thinking about what's going to happen to him in a few days. Uh, Remember that Jesus has always known that he is going to give his life for his people. Um, Even the beginning of the Gospel of John, um, way back at the beginning of this Gospel in John chapter 1, even John the Baptist seems to know that Jesus is going to somehow be a lamb that is sacrificed for us. Remember, John the Baptist declares, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And if you remember way, way back this fall, uh, you know, this previous fall, you may remember that even at Jesus's first miracle, when he turns the water into wine, he talks about his hour, which for Jesus means the moment that he's going to die on the cross for his people. And as we go on in the next few weeks, you'll also hear Jesus talking more and more about his hour. And even though Jesus is celebrating and and Martha has made this beautiful meal right here in our story, and even though Mary is anointing Jesus in this beautiful, uh, extravagantly generous way, Jesus' mind is focused on the cross. And he mentions that to Judas. He says, she has done this for my burial. So you start to see all throughout the Gospel of John that uh, Jesus and the whole story and the disciples and Mary and all the things that people are doing is really culminating and moving towards what Jesus is going to do on the cross when he becomes the ultimate Passover lamb to take away our sins. 
So all of this is rolling around in Jesus' mind. Um, yes, he's, he's celebrating with Lazarus that he's back from the dead. And Mary, you know, comes with this beautiful gift, but that's in the back of his mind. So what does Martha and Mary, what do, they, what do these sisters do? Uh, well, you'll notice that Martha serves him an elaborate meal. Uh, when you look at Matthew and Mark, the other Gospels, uh, they mention that this is taking place in the home of a man named Simon the leper. And we don't know exactly who he is. Maybe he was Mary and Martha and Lazarus's father or relative or neighbor. We're not really sure. Uh, but Jesus is also with his 12 disciples. Uh, you know, this is Passover week. And so there are a ton of people who are eating at this feast. And when it says it makes him dinner and then it says Lazarus was reclining, uh, those words in the original Greek don't just refer to they just ate dinner like normal. It actually evokes more of the idea of a dinner party, uh, which would be exactly along the lines of this whole story, which is Mary and Martha want to thank Jesus that their brother is back from the dead. Wouldn't you have loved uh, to sat at this dinner table? I mean, just a few days ago, uh, they were complaining about the stench of Lazarus's body rotting in the tomb. And here he is uh, enjoying dinner with Jesus. And now instead of the stench of death, there's this beautiful fragrance of perfume filling the room. Uh, you have to think that the whole party was so excited and thankful. And you also have to think if Jesus can raise Lazarus from the dead, if they were eating with Simon the leper at his home, like Matthew tells us, uh, it was probably more accurate to say Simon the ex-leper. That Simon and Lazarus had both been healed miraculously by Jesus. Wouldn't you have loved to listen to that dinner conversation? Uh, well, before you can get into that dinner conversation, though, John uh, tells us something shocking happens in this dinner party. And it's right there in verse 3. You see, Mary comes up to Jesus and she anoints his feet with a pound. Uh, technically, it was 11 and a half ounces. So, you know, imagine just a can of, of Coke or Pop or, you know, LaCroix. Just imagine, you know, a 12-ounce can. And she breaks the top off of the flask uh, Matthew tells us it was made out of alabaster. And she begins to pour it on Jesus. And it's shocking because uh, this flask of ointment was made from pure spikenard, or nard for short. It was just a type of uh, bush that was found in northern India at this time. It was incredibly precious, incredibly expensive. And when I say incredibly expensive, that doesn't even do justice to how expensive this was. And then if that's not shocking enough, she, seem, she seemingly empties the entire bottle. And then even more shockingly, um, instead of washing Jesus' feet with water, uh, it seems that Mary uses the ointment and washes his feet with it. And then shockingly, she undoes her hair. She lets down her tresses and she wipes his feet with her hair. And for a room full of men, this would have been incredibly shocking. And so uh, Matthew and Mark, when they recount this story, they say several of the disciples uh, were shocked and appalled that they would waste such expensive perfume and that it would have been better to be used to give to the poor. And sure enough, John tells us that it was actually Judas who says those very words. Uh, he looks at Mary and Judas says, Right there in verse 5, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And when Judas says that, 300, uh, what, what does that refer to? What's a denarius? Well, a denarius in the ancient world was simply one day's 
wage. So if you factor in Sabbaths happen once a week and you don't work those days, and you factor in all the other festivals in the Jewish calendar, 300 denarii really means a full year's wage. And, uh, you know, that's a shocking amount of money in this ancient world, and it's a shocking amount of money even by today's standards. I mean, just last year, um, I found an article from CNBC that uh, 72% of Americans in 2019 didn't have $1,000 in their savings account. 72% of Americans didn't have $1,000 in their savings account. And, uh, you know, the, the latest stats I could find from the Bureau of Labor Statistics said that the average annual income for a worker in the United States was $44,740. So if that's the average annual income, and Americans mostly don't have any savings, the fact that this woman in the ancient world was willing to pour out a year's worth of wages for one night is incredibly generous and incredibly extravagant. So it's small wonder that the disciples in the room, and Judas in particular, uh, sneer and scoff at her and question her radical generosity. But if that's not surprising enough, it's amazing how Jesus responds uh, to beautiful Mary. What he says to Mary is he says, or to Judas, he says, look, leave her alone. (laughs) Don't you love that? He says, leave her alone, Judas. And he says that in verse 7. And he says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. See what Jesus is saying right there is he's saying somehow, and it's almost hard to understand um, in that sentence, but somehow Mary has done this to prepare for Jesus's burial and to prepare for his death, which is now just days away. And whether Jesus is saying she did it because she knew he was going to die, and so she had been keeping it, or whether she did it not knowing why she always felt some sense from the Lord that she shouldn't use it, uh, we don't really know. But what we do know is that Jesus says it was right of her to do it, that he is thankful that she did it, and that we shouldn't begrudge her generosity. And then Jesus finishes the story really just quoting from the Old Testament. He quotes from Deuteronomy 15, 11, which says, the poor of the land you will always have with you. And Jesus is not saying that believers are supposed to be, um, you know, um, unconcerned or um, inactive when it comes to the plight of the poor. In fact, the whole point of Deuteronomy 15 is that you and I as believers in God are supposed to care especially for the poor. And so Jesus isn't pitting giving to the Lord generously with, you know, giving to the poor generously. Uh, In fact, I think what's actually true is that the more you realize the generosity that we receive from the Lord, and the more generous we become to the Lord, the more we'll be generous to the poor. It's not either or, it's actually both and. And that's how the story ends. So what are you and I supposed to learn from this story? Well, uh, the first thing I want you to focus in on with me then is the aroma. What are we supposed to learn from Mary uh, pouring out a whole pound, you know, almost full 12 ounces of this beautiful spikenard? Well, you know, the amazing thing in this story is that she doesn't anoint just Jesus's head. It actually says in this story that she anoints his feet. 
You see, you would anoint someone's head if you wanted to crown them a king or something. And surely, as Matthew and Mark tell us, she does anoint Jesus' head. But John wants us to focus on the fact that she anoints Jesus' feet. You could say she anoints him head to toe, right? He's covered in oil and perfume. And it's amazing that she washes his feet because even uh, the lowliest servants wouldn't be asked to wash somebody's feet. You were expected to wash your own feet. They smelled bad. Remember, people wore sandals and they didn't have hot showers like we do. And not only does she wash Jesus' feet, she uses her glory, her beautiful hair, to wipe his feet clean. It's like Mary is trying to say, Jesus, you are worthy of everything that I have. The most precious possession that I own, the nard, I'll give it to you. Even my glory pales into comparison with you. And, you know, if you think this is over the top, uh, you have to place yourself back into this story. Remember who's at the table with her, her brother who she watched die is breathing and laughing and drinking wine and eating again. He is alive from the dead. (laughs) She could not be more thankful. And what did Jesus just tell her? He says, I am the resurrection and the life. If anyone believes in me, though they die, yet shall they live. Do you believe this? I mean, how could Mary not give Jesus everything Um, In fact, uh, this is the shocking thing about the story. It's not that Mary is doing something particularly beautiful. It's how is Lazarus not at Jesus' feet? How how are the disciples not at Jesus' feet, giving him praise and adoration and glory and everything? I mean, how is Judas not terrified to betray this man who can bring the dead back to life? You see, instead of looking down at Mary, we should be looking up to her because she's the only one in the room, except for maybe Martha, who actually gets how worthy Jesus is of everything. And friends, when you and I start to get a vision and a belief, a sight for the glory of the worth and the value of Jesus our Lord, everything about us changes. Uh, We want to not reduce the minimum. Uh, We don't want to think about what's the least I can give this person. We want to start asking, what's the most I can give you? In fact, this is exactly the pattern that we see all throughout the Bible when people come to know the grace and the love of God in Christ Jesus. Uh, You may remember in the book of Luke, there's a story about a little guy named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a We little man was he, yeah, you got it, right? In that story, you may remember that he used to steal from people because he struggled with greed. And when he comes to know Jesus, when Jesus comes to his house, Jesus says, salvation has come to Zacchaeus. And how does Zacchaeus respond? Does he say, well, what's what's the bare minimum I've got to give to the Lord? What's the tax that I've got to give you? Is that what he says? Well, in Luke, Zacchaeus says to Jesus, of his own new will, he says, Lord, I want to give back to everyone I stole four times what I took from them. I want to go above and beyond any wrong that I've done. I want to repent in word and in deed. But that's not the only thing that Zacchaeus says. He also says that half of everything I own, I'm going to give 
to the poor. You see, when the gospel of grace, when the reality and the gravity and the power of the truth of God's generosity towards us in Christ Jesus, when we realize that God did not even hold back his son for us, but gave himself for us, took our sins upon himself, when we start to see the generosity of God towards us, it starts to change you and me from the inside out so that we don't just receive the generosity of God. We experience it, we embrace it, and we start expressing it back to the Lord and back to the poor. And instead of asking what's the least amount we can give, we start to ask, how can I embrace the generosity of God? How do I maximize what I can give to others? You remember two weeks ago, I suggested that our church needs to embrace an old-fashioned virtue, a virtue that is called prudence. And prudence means we don't waste our resources and we don't waste money when we don't need to. It means we make prudent decisions. We are frugal and we don't go over the top unnecessarily. We don't make unwise decisions. We do the cautious, the safe thing. Um, all throughout the Bible, people are uh, commanded over and over again to be prudent. Uh, in fact, that, that's the default setting for a believer is to be prudent and to be wise. And only when God really calls us to do something outside the bounds of that are we supposed to go beyond prudence. And I know for many of you, you've probably been trying to embrace prudence, right? You've been thankful that you can uh, reduce spending and think of ways to reduce your costs and to save as much money as possible. Uh, but friends, what I want to remind you of, and Christian, what I want to call you to, is that if you and I, if we embrace prudence out of fear, if we become prudent to cling more tightly, we will never become the new kind of different people in church that we're meant to become. Uh, friends, what I want you to start realizing about generosity and giving to the Lord is that you and I embrace prudence so that we can be generous to others for the long haul. We embrace prudence, not just for our own sake, but so that we can have something to share with people in the days, in the weeks, in the months to come. You see, the problem is if, if we let fear become our main determinant, if fear becomes our motivation for all of our prudence, so to speak, the problem then, friend, is if you let the, the seed of fear and doubt work, your way, work its way through your heart instead of the generosity of God and a prudence that has its focus on God's generosity, not so that we can spend extravagantly on others or ourselves, but so that we can be generous to them in times of need. If we let fear determine our prudence, that fear will very quickly turn into cold and calculating contempt for others. And it will turn into pride 
And it will pave the road to hell for us. And friends, if you, if you think I'm overstating the case, this is exactly what's happening to Judas in the story. He sees extravagant generosity and he becomes cold and calculating and full of contempt. His love and his greed for money snuffs out his faith. And if you think I'm overstating that, um, I wish I was, but this is the warning of Scripture. This is what Paul tells young Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul says these words. He says, For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. I wonder when Timothy preached that passage for the first time, I wonder if he used Judas as his example of someone who had an inordinate, um, self-centered love of money and that forced him to wander away from the faith. You see, really, that's the, that's the, the stink in the room. That's the stench in our story, Right? Mary does this beautiful gesture. Um, Jesus says in Matthew that she did a beautiful thing for me. And as beautiful and as lovely as that smell was, there's also a stench, isn't there? And it's Judas. Uh, John makes a point uh, to remind us that Judas is going to betray Jesus. And as, uh, you know, it seems like Judas is just giving voice to what other disciples are thinking, uh, John tells us the right interpretation, right? Which is Judas said that not because he was actually concerned about the poor, which would be the mark of a true Christian, true concern for the poor. He says this, that is Judas. Judas says this because actually he was a thief and he used to be in charge of the money bag for Jesus, but he used to help himself to it when he saw fit. And if you remember just a few weeks ago, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. And Jesus says, but the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. And that word thief there that Jesus uses is right here in our passage. And what does Judas end up doing but steal, kill, and destroy? He stole from the disciples, he helps kill Jesus, and he destroys his faith while he does it. All that to say, um, friends, the, the stench is the worry about greed. But, you know, I need you to hear me on this, okay? Just as your pastor, I want you to hear me on this. The hardest thing I do um, is not when people complain. You know, some people come and say, oh, it's so hard. It must be so hard when people complain. You know, I'm used to it. People complain about everything, right? Everyone hears complaints. Complaints do not make my life, you know, unbearable. Now, that's not an invitation for you to complain, okay? I don't want to get a bunch of complaint emails this week. 
But that's not the hardest part of my job. Like the hardest part of my job, uh, the hardest part of being called to shepherd God's people, the thing that makes me want to, you know, bang my head on my pulpit is um, my inability to convince people that sin is as self-destructive and stupid and evil as the Bible says it is. That's the hardest part, is convincing you sin really is dangerous and it really will destroy you from the inside out. And uh, you know, so the danger of worrying about greed and avarice and an inordinate love of money right now, the danger, friends, is that you and I will automatically go to, well, I don't really struggle with this. Uh, you know, my favorite pastor, Tim Keller, in New York City talks about this in his book, Counterfeit Gods. Um, in his chapter on greed, he says uh, he has taught for years on avoiding sin. And yet, for some reason, in New York City, in Manhattan, New York, he's never once had a person come to him and confess the sin of greed. For some reason, our love of money, um, it, it's almost like, it's like we're nose blind to it. You know, someone taught me that phrase uh, this past year. I love that phrase. It's when you can't smell a smell anymore. You know, that smell that happens every year when all the, you know, the, the THC is grown and stuff and you just, you just pray that you become nose blind to it. Uh, friends, I worry that you and I are nose blind to our love of money. And if you think you're not prone to greed, prone to struggling with money, uh, friends, that may be your first sign that you do. Uh, that maybe you have pride in yourself and you're underestimating just how alluring money is. Uh, think about it this way. Um, you know the guy Andrew Carnegie? You know the philanthropist, the guy behind the steel industry in Pittsburgh from about 130 years ago? Um, Andrew Carnegie, you know, he famously, you know, put libraries all over the country. He built the Medford Library. You can drive past it, uh, you know, at some point in the future. You can get around and drive around downtown and you can see uh, the Carnegie Library that he donated to our community. Uh, but did you know, as much as that man was focused on making money, uh, we found his journal, uh, people did years ago, and he wrote this when he was 33. Uh, when Carnegie was 33, he wrote this in his personal journal, he said these words, a man must have an idol. The amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry. No idol is more debasing than the worship of money. Whatever I engage in, I must be careful to choose the life which will be the most elevating in character. And then friends, what's so fascinating about what Andrew Carnegie writes next, and it'll break your heart is Carnegie then says, therefore, I will cease business when I am 35. You see, in his personal journal, at 33, Carnegie could see it. He could put his finger on it. He could feel its pulse. He knew that money was an idol and that if he didn't do something about it, it would consume him. And so at 33, he says, at 35, I'm going to be done making money. I'm going to cease from business. I will resign. But if you know your history, you'll know that that did not happen. 
uh, that he did spend most of his life making money. And if you study his life, uh, you may also know that um, in his desire to make, uh, uh, to become the wealthiest man at the turn of the 20th century, which he did, uh, it was often reported in the local news the number of men who died in the steel mills in Pittsburgh. Uh, the British newspaper, The Economist, wrote that the list of men who died and were injured in his steel mills were so long that they rivaled the casualty lists from the Civil War. And as Pastor Tim Keller points out beautifully, he points out, see, the problem with Carnegie and with you and me is that idols cannot be removed from our hearts. Greed cannot just be removed from our lives. It has to be removed and replaced with something far better. You don't remove idols. You and I, we replace them. The way that we avoid greed is not by taking pride in ourselves and saying, well, I would never struggle with money. The way you replace an idol you focus on something profoundly more captivating. The generosity, the extravagance, the overwhelming love of God, our Savior, in Christ Jesus. That's how you and I remove the idols, the good things that we make our ultimate things. We remove them by replacing them. And friends, that's our hope. That's the hope. Uh, you know, you and I are not just supposed to grow prudence so that we can take pride in our prudence. <laughs> that's just a stairway down that leads to contempt over others. You and I are supposed to embrace prudence because prudence is a characteristic of the Lord. <laughs> and you and I are supposed to embrace generosity because that's a characteristic of our Lord. See, that's the hope. You know, the hope is not that, you know, Mary can earn her salvation by her extravagance. Uh, the hope is not that uh, the disciples can earn Jesus' approval by their, you know, hypocritical concern for the poor. Uh, the hope, friends, is tied up in what Jesus is thinking about all through the story. The hope that you and I have is that Jesus really will be anointed for burial. You know, when he looks at Mary, at this extravagant gift, as he sees Judas across from him eating at his table, don't you think Jesus knows what Judas is going to do? Don't you think Jesus knows he's going to be betrayed? And here comes Mary, the only one who sees his worth, and she puts them all to shame by her generosity and her extravagance. And then they all start looking down on her. And Jesus says, leave her alone. Mary, don't you see? You're not just anointing my head because tomorrow I'm going to be announced as king. You're anointing my whole body because my whole body is going to be nailed to the cross for you. And my whole body is going to be placed in a tomb and they're not going to have time to do all of the burial rites for me because all of my disciples are going to leave me. And so what you have done by your generosity and your extravagance 
Because you've prepared me for burial. And not just burial, friends, but on Resurrection Sunday, Jesus came back from the dead. And friends, that's our hope. Our hope is that you and I embody, we embrace, and we express the generosity of God during this time. We become more prudent with our resources and our time, not out of fear, but so that we can love those around us for the days and the weeks and the months to come. And we pursue generosity, not because we believe it's going to build our portfolio, but because we all know of all people that we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing with us out of it. And that money is a snare. So let me just finish with the question. Do you have an aroma? You know, an aroma, fragrance. Uh, you know, I, I like to think that any time John smelled nard, he thought of this story. But do you have a fragrance, you know, an aroma that you, you like to wear? Well, the Bible says that you and I, we actually do. We do have an aroma and a fragrance uh, that we wear. And part of our calling as Christians is to spread the aroma of Christ to the ends of the earth. And that part of our new kind of different friends moving forward is we're supposed to express the beautiful, fragrant generosity of God throughout this world. So let me finish by reading to you what your fragrance smells like. Paul says this of all Christians, but thanks be to God who in Christ Jesus always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, but to others, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Christian, you are, because you have received and embraced the generosity of Christ Jesus. Are you ready to start expressing it? Let's pray. Now, Father, we thank you for your generosity to us in Jesus. Now, Father, may we use prudence as a tool to bless those around us. And Father, would we be found generous people like Mary and Martha, reflecting the generosity of your son, Jesus. Amen.